0: This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Luis Young, professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Young is the author most recently of Beyond the Metropolis, Second Cities and Modern Life in Interwar Japan, published by the University of California Press in 2013. Dr. Young, thank you so much for talking with me today.
1: I'm delighted to be here.
0: So much of our understanding of the Meiji Restoration and the Meiji period is really this top-down story of modernization. And it's one that often centers on the capital city of Tokyo. And you've written in particular in Beyond the Metropolis, looking at a more provincial understanding of the Meiji period. So could you talk about how does the story of Meiji change when we're not looking at it from this metro-centric perspective?
1: It's a great question. And I think that You know, one of the things that happens when you try to tell the story of modernity from outside of the capital city of Tokyo is you get a story of many modernities. There are, for every place that you focus in and zoom in on, you get a very different tale and we tend to understand you know sort of one of the grand narratives that we have or the, the mythologies that we have if you will about what modernity is is that everything gets to look more and more the same and we explain that by saying well either these processes of, of modernity are are developed and invented in one place and exported out to everywhere else and so you have a center and everybody else becomes a, a periphery that follows So that's the kind of diffusion narrative, or else we tell the story of modernity as all these local places that are different from one another, but they they tend to follow the leader and become, start to look more and more alike. That's the convergence narrative. And I think what I found when I went and looked at these local experiences of provincial cities and how... And and what the tale of modernization or modernity was for those places, what it showed was there were just very, very different local experiences. Some similarities, every place, for example, was influenced or shaped by the process of educational modernization. Japan created a national school system and established elementary and higher educational structures everywhere. And so every single place that I looked at and every, you know, every town and village or city will have a local school system. But within that sort of broader structure that is unifying and creating those processes of, of convergence, the shape that those schools take, you know, has, has a lot of differences, One of the cities that I I looked at was Okayama, which had been a castle town. And in castle towns, you had a real concentration of earlier institutions of higher education that the modern structure, educational structure, built up out of. And so there was a, a way that those earlier structures became absorbed into and accelerated the process and shaped and conditioned the educational modernization that that took place at those sites, but a place like Niigata, which was another city that I looked at, which was a port city and a a trading city in the Tokugawa period, it didn't have those kinds of institutions. So Niigata was designated as a capital city of the prefecture, and those institutions were created kind of anew in that place. So it had enormous implications for how people were educated, and for Nigata's ability to churn out graduates that were of high competitive quality early on in the Meiji period.
0: And often when we think about these narratives of modernization, either coming from from the center going to the periphery, there's often this underlying assumption that there is a resistance element, like resistance to power, antagonism to the center. I mean, is this too simplistic of a way of thinking, or is there something much more complicated going on?
1: That's another really interesting question. And yeah, you're right. I mean, we tend to frame center periphery in terms of you know state non-state and state imposing power and you know resistance to that power and i think that in the japanese case there was a very uneven geography of power and different places had different kinds of political capital vis-a-vis the center some local places had access to the center they had social connections social networks they had political networks and so in the early part of the meiji period they already had a kind of precocious ties to the center and other places developed those later on via the creation of political parties and pork barrel politics and so it was a it's it was kind of a complicated process again you you have to get inside each story to each local place to uncover and track the different forms of connection between those places in the center and what different incentives are underneath there to explain why there might be resistance or my, why there might be support. But to get back to your earlier question, your initial question, it's not automatic that a local place or a provincial city would set itself up as resisting the center that there would be a certain set of conditions that would produce that effect. And sometimes there's conditions that produce the opposite effect, you know, a kind of an alliance.
0: You were talking before about these two narratives of diffusion and convergence. In your book, Beyond the Metropolis, you very usefully talk instead about circulation. Could you give us a few examples of what you had in mind in, in this kind of circulation that develops Japanese modern life?
1: Yeah. When I think about circulation, I think we often think about you know circulation between say the west and asia or europe and japan and Without thinking about it too precisely, we're just imagining that philosophical ideas or institutional models of government or banking or forms of factory organization come from England to Japan or from America to Japan. But in fact, those ideas, often they're transported by individuals that come from very specific places, and go to very specific places. And if, you know, for example, an idea about educational outreach, or agricultural outreach, often came from a land-grant university in the United States that was someplace like the University of Wisconsin, where I'm at. And went via a Japanese student that was studying with a particular teacher. And then they went back to, maybe they went to to Tokyo. But from there, the ideas spread out again, usually via someone who is carrying it around in their own head and moved to another place. And so the point about circulation is that ideas and models as they move around they're they're highly mediated. So we don't just get something that comes from a place called Europe and goes to a place called Japan, but it comes from a, a place like that's maybe, you know, Manchester in England in a particular factory, and comes to a particular factory in Osaka, and then moves out from there. It doesn't just sort of diffuse, but it, it circulates from place to place. And at each point, it's transformed. And that process of circulation, I think, is really interesting to look at because things don't just flow freely one way or the other. That flow is conditioned, it's controlled. So how does one idea get from Osaka to Okayama or to Niigata? Well, it turns out there are channels that allow it to move Say if we're talking about the organization of a factory or how you install machinery to make, you know, mechanized textiles, those kinds of things, there's reasons that those textile factories are set up first in the Kansai area and go to other places later. It's because the circulation is is set to flow along certain kinds of corridors or channels. And... That has to do with connections between people, social networks, the kinds of differentials that you see in unevenness and, and differentials that you see between places, and uneven access to resources. And so when I was looking at the four cities that I examined in my book, Beyond the Metropolis, I thought a lot about why people moved from one place to another, How ideas went from one place to another, and which ways they went, and why. And so that's kind of how I think about circulation.
0: Along the same lines, you know, we think about the circulation really highlights how this idea of Japanese urban modernity is co constitutive with all of these places kind of coming together. If we expand beyond the national borders of Japan and look at how the empire is also playing a role in the development of Japanese modernity, you can also talk about another kind of co constitutive development.
1: Right. So colonial cities, which, you know, I didn't get into colonial cities in that book, but it is really interesting to think about the relationship of Japanese colonial cities and domestic cities. In particular, when you think about them in comparison and in terms of the structures that say the center periphery structures, say the forms of circulation say the relationships between different institutions say banking institutions financial institutions railroads and communications higher education communications and the press mass culture and the culture industries there's a national and an imperial empire-wide kind of marketplace that connects a lot of these different institutions and and gives them access to each other. So, for example, the Chambers of Commerce. I loved looking at the Chambers of Commerce. They had just really terrific materials that you can look at because Japanese Chambers of Commerce published all this stuff on the areas that were within their bailiwick. And the way Chambers of Commerce operated in colonial cities and the way they operated in domestic cities were really very similar because of the similarities in the business culture that these these entrepreneurs took with them into cities like Dalian and Shinkyo, the capital of Manchukuo. So one of the things that really struck me really powerfully, when because the first book that I did was on the empire, and I brought with me in that study an assumption that a lot of the attitudes that Japanese elites in a place in China had towards the, the Chinese were inflected with a kind of colonialist racism, xenophobia. But when I started looking at attitudes of urban elites in Japanese cities, and this went for in, in a kind of social hierarchy that put the metropolis, the biggest cities of, of Tokyo and Osaka at the top, and then ranked places as kind of lower and lower on a, a hierarchy of perceived civilization, I realized that there was a very similar attitude that bore a lot of family resemblances to colonial racism that was the kind of attitude that urban elites had towards people that lived in the countryside and the bigger the city that you lived in, you know, you had this kind of derogatory attitude towards smaller cities. And people that lived in smaller cities had a kind of superior attitude towards people that lived in small towns. So it made me realize that what I had taken initially to be a form of racism that said Japanese colonizers viewed colonized people as backward and other, city people viewed country people as backward and other. In very similar kinds of ways and even using, you know, kind of similar metaphors and narratives and these myths that kind of lined up with one another. And this really connects with recently I was talking to, I you know, when I worked earlier on, on Empire, I had been really taken with the ideas of people like Hana Rend and Caribbean negritude poet named Aimé Césaire. And Aimé Césaire had, had written this wonderful short essay called Discourse on Colonialism. And he argues basically in this, and, and Hannah Arendt makes something of the same argument, that that the origins of Nazism and its murderous rage towards Jewish people originated in the colonies where you had European people go out and learn how to become and becoming brutalized by their treatment of colonial peoples. And eventually their culture and their ethics became so brutalized, that it all came home to roost. And you saw that in fascism and Nazism. And I found that idea really productive in thinking about what happened in Japan in the 1930s and the kind of rise of of Japanese fascism and that these that this kind of murderous violence and the othering just spreads and it eventually turns inward but what gave me pause and made me start to kind of rethink that and go back to it by to you know a bit too simple was the ways in which after doing the research for beyond the metropolis and the second city book how realizing how much of these kinds of attitudes were already prevalent and very pervasive in japan and weren't the product of colonialism. It was very much a homegrown kind of thing.
0: In in any event, it's still a great example of how events that are happening overseas are being brought back and this kind of culture of of empire overseas is is influencing popular culture at home. And the way I use this in class, in fact, is I I talk about this as creating this culture of popular fascism. Mm. And, And I wonder if, I mean, the tales of beautiful stories, the bidon about the soldiers and and the kind of popularity that you get in the wake of the Manchurian incident does create this popular attitude where any critique of the military is seen as un-Japanese and as treasonous in a way. And do you see the same thing? Is is there kind of a asceticization of politics here, the growing of a popular fascism in Japan in the 30s?
1: Yeah, I, I think this whole question of fascism is so interesting you know, we've we've had in our field this big debate about fascism that was, you know, when I was in graduate school in the 80s, it was still the sort of tail end of that. So as graduate students, we were required to read all these essays on, you know, was Japan fascist or was it not fascist? And you know, people got down to saying, well, Japan was so different than Germany and and Italy that you can't really call it fascist. And at a certain point, it just lost any, for me anyway, any, it became very uninteresting and ungenerative as a historical argument. So I I kind of uh, at that point thought, well, I'm not going to really think about this in terms of fascism. And I, I largely avoided using that word in In my first book, for that reason, I just didn't want to get drawn into some fascism debate. But that being said, more recently, you know, I think we've come back to the idea of, of fascism, and historians are looking at it, not in terms of some rigid political structure, but that you can use the term a little bit more loosely that you can talk about fascist ideology, you can talk about a fascist movement. You can talk about fascism as part of a global moment when there was this rise of global fascism that was a response to a widely perceived crisis in capitalism, such that there were fascist movements everywhere in the industrialized world. And lots of of places outside of the industrialized world too. You know, one of the interesting things about the new work on fascism is looking at fascist movements in places like Thailand and Brazil and not in the advanced industrialized societies. So back to Japanese fascism. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to think about the ways that the crisis, the, the, the sort of economic crisis of the late 1920s and early 1930s became the backdrop to a radical turn to the empire and the sense that manchuria was a kind of a lifeline and how radicalism in the empire fostered radicalism at home how military conspiracies in the empire fostered military conspiracies at home How a war fever and a thirst, a hunger for some kind of success or deflection or distraction on the part of lots of people created this eager marketplace for these kind of heroic narratives of the war. Especially when there wasn't a lot of suffering to go along with it at that point in the early 1930s, and how the cultural producers, whether they were movie companies or people making plays or people selling books or people selling magazines, all of that, you know, when you have this commercialized mass media, it really picks up on and and kind of zeroes in on what we call today the shiny objects you know those kinds of military campaigning becomes that shiny object so all of that comes together to stir up things like war fever and militarism the kind of fever for the aestheticization of violence the belief in military heroes and how that lines up with a turn to trusting a military-led state that was really characteristic, I think, of what I think of as Japanese fascism in the 1930s.
0: And you're mentioning that this was a debate that was really heated in the 1980s. And you know, when you think about this being the 150th anniversary of the Meiji Restoration, and questions of of, are we making too much out of that one day decide, these anniversary moments are opportune times for us as scholars to reflect on on how we've viewed that history over, say, these last 150 years. We see a number of these historiographical debates that pop up every once in a while. When we look at it from that perspective, how do you think the coverage of the Meiji Restoration has changed over the years?
1: Oh, that is a terrific question. So the Meiji Restoration is its kind of like, uh, in, the, in the same way that the fascism debate was really powerful in the 1980s, I think that the Meiji Restoration had its kind of foundational moment in constructing an idea of Meiji in the 60s and 70s. And a lot of the early scholars of Japan, their big concern, when you look back at at what they were writing about, so many of them were writing about the Meiji Restoration. You know, dissertation after dissertation of that first generation of what we called then Japanologists, their interest was the Meiji Restoration. And their stakes in the Meiji Restoration were really about, you know, how Japan's path to modernity and how kind of thinking about they were coming out of World War II, they were thinking about Japan as a model for democracy and, and, and democratic modernization and a, modern, and a model for sort of third world development. And the Meiji Restoration, all this research on the Meiji Restoration, I think was kind of evaluating its successes and failures, but looking at it, at it as, a, as a big political project and focusing in on the leadership and the kind of grand dynamics that went into that political revolution, and the sets of transforming reforms that came out of it. So that was kind of like the first wave of research on on the Meiji Restoration. And then in the in the 80s and 90s, things really shifted to look to get down into the weeds and look at, you know, how did everyday people experience Meiji? What were the impacts on the ground? What were, you know, a lot on resistance, a lot on people left out of it, a lot on kind of the, the underside of Meiji and the Meiji restoration and, and who kind of suffered from it. But so it was, Meiji got kind of reformed under that whole social history turn and then it got kind of again changed under the the cultural turn and we started thinking a lot more about sort of media media's ideology and and symbolism and kind of the the broader cultures of power and knowledge that came to obtain in in that period and and structure the lives everyday lives of people again getting away from this top down perspective but another approach to thinking about middle-level and grassroots-level experiences of Meiji via culture. And, you know, after that, it seemed like people started, you know, there was another kind of shift where we started thinking about Meiji as not such a, instead of the rupture of Meiji, looking more at the continuities and thinking about, what people called in other histories, you know, the long 19th century. But so people, I think, started thinking about talking more about Bakumatsu Meiji and a kind of a long transition into capitalism, the long transition into incorporating Japan into a some kind of a global structure, world structure, a long transition into the breakdown of the the status system, a long transition into the breakdown of that centralized feudalism that was the, that characterized the Tokugawa order. So I think then, you know, pe- there was this, this turn towards thinking about Meiji as kind of the endpoint of the Tokugawa rather than the beginning, as much as just the launching of Japanese modernity. And you know, I don't know. I don't know where we are now. I think it's really interesting to come back to Meiji at this at this point. And I I think you know the way we look at it has really inflected by our contemporary moment and the ways that Japan's position in the world and in Asia has changed so much over the past fifteen years, really, and that that's opened up, you know, and I'm thinking here about kind of the rise of China and Japan's retreat and the fact that the, you know, suddenly the Japan and China have in some ways kind of switched places. When I started graduate school, China was this kind of clunky aging communist fossil and Japan was this, this economic dynamo. And now (laughs) China is this uh, economic dynamo, and and Japan is kind of a, um, a you know, this sclerotic economy and an anti model for economic growthism. So that's, and I think that that's really shapes how we look back at the history of the past two hundred years, and is going to continue to, is going to shape how we look at Meiji as well.
0: The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Centre for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.